All right, guys, you're going to need a Bible today. If you have your Bibles, grab them and open up with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will get you hooked up with a Bible. In our Bibles, you're going to find Hebrews 11 on page 1008. It's going to be towards the back of the book. Hey, we want you to have the Bible in front of you. So if you got your own, if you got it on your phone, or if you want one of ours, we want you to see the Word of God. We want you to read with us. There's something way more powerful when you read these words for yourself. We're going to be in Hebrews for just a little bit, and then we'll jump from Hebrews over to Joshua chapter 2. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelter Cove. If you are joining us for the first time, welcome. We are so glad to have you with us on this special holiday weekend. Thank you for taking time out of your busy weekend to come and hang with us. Welcome to our family. We are going to wrap up a series that we've been in for some time now called Faith in the Fight. And we're going to wrap this series up with an incredible story about an incredible woman. And I hate to use that word story because it almost implies like mythology or like fairy tale. Really, this is a historical account of just an incredible woman. Here's what I've been praying this this account would do in our lives. I've been praying that this, this story of Rahab would shake loose some of the preconceived ideas we carry about Christianity I've been hoping that this text would kind of rattle us free from some of the lame, incorrect, false ideas that we carry into Christianity. And I'm hoping it sets us back on what true, orthodox, liberated, beautiful Christianity is. With that being said, would you stand with me as we read Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11 verses 30 through 31. This is going to kind of be the Spark Notes version of Joshua. This is going to be kind of the recap, and then we will jump into Joshua and let the story unfold for us. Here's how verse 30 begins. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray. Father, we need your help now. Lord, I pray that you would help me, God. Help me to teach this text well. Help me to rely upon you, Lord. Help me to be dependent on you now, God. And I pray for my my friends here, these people here, Lord, these men and women. I pray that you help them to really understand, God. Help them to really know and, and hear what your word has today, Lord. May this not be about Shelter Cove. May this not be about Chad. May it be about Jesus and the truth that are within these pages. We will need your help to do with that, Lord. Our propensities to make this stuff about us and to get self-centered. May we lift our eyes up onto Christ in this time. So please help us, Lord. Pray these things in your wonderful, wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, and while you're taking a seat, flip over with me to Joshua chapter 2. If you're in our Bibles, Joshua 2 is going to be on page 178. We're going to be camping out in Joshua 2 for a while. Here's kind of the game plan for today. I want to let you know where my head's at for today. What I want to do is just let Rahab's story tell itself. There's so much power in just letting the story be the story. 
I think this is why we enjoy movies so much. This is why we enjoy great books. There's something captivating about just letting the story speak. So I want to let the story speak. And as we march through this story, what I want to do is pull out four different lessons, four lessons about Rahab's faith that I think are going to be super important for us. Shelter Cove is a church all about reaching and raising authentic followers of Christ. If you and I are going to be authentic followers of Christ, and if we're going to reach and raise people to be authentic followers of Christ, we're gonna need to know what Rahab is gonna show us in this text. Rahab's story starts off in chapter two. Pick this up with me as we read. Joshua two begins. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me. But I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So let me unpack what's happening here. Joseph has, or I'm sorry, Joshua has just taken over for Moses. Moses is without a doubt the greatest leader Israel has had. I mean, they, he is a deeply, deeply revered and loved leader in the nation of Israel. Joshua's got to fill those shoes now. Very big responsibility to fill. Trying to be a good leader, what he does is sends spies secretly into the land that they are about to conquer. And he says, go especially to Jericho. Now, during this time, Israel is over on the eastern side of the River Jordan. Jericho's on the west. You have to cross the river to get over to Jericho. So they swim across the river at night. They make their way over to Jericho. Jericho is the greatest fortified city in the land at this time. Built up on a hill, 360 degree view of all the land around you and two sets of walls, a lower wall and an upper wall. This made the city virtually impenetrable because even if you got over one set, you still had another one to cross. This city had an immense defensive advantage over every other city. The spies crawl over the first wall. Apparently, they're not very good at spying because what does the text say? The king finds out that they're there. So they got spotted somehow in their crossing and going over the wall. Now, the text says that they're crossing at night. They jump over the wall. It seems like these men are aware that they've been spotted because they start looking for lodging. They start looking for somewhere to take them in. Now, they can't go to a hotel. They can't go to a motel because they're gonna be given up. So they spot a woman who's simply described as Rahab the prostitute. Now, it's nighttime. What do prostitutes tend to do at night? Okay, so how do you think Rahab is dressed right now? probably in a way that would entice 
her male clients even under the cover of night. These two spies see Rahab and they start thinking, hey, I bet if we, if we give that prostitute enough money, she'll hide us. Who else would be willing to betray their country, betray their nation for a quick dollar? So they go to Rahab, can you hide us? She immediately can tell that they're not from there. They've got different clothing. They sound different. She brings them inside and starts talking with them. And as she's talking with them, she begins to hear the heavy armored footsteps of the king's men coming towards her house. So she takes the men upstairs and hides them on the roof, buries them under flax, comes back downstairs. And as soon as her feet hit the bottom floor, boom, boom, boom. She hears the heavy knocking on the door. Rahab, bring out the men. We know they're in there. Now Rahab's this smooth, I mean, street savvy, street smart prostitute. She's had to lie and deceive all the time throughout her career. And she just pulls kind of this card here. She opens the door up like nothing's happened. What seems to be the problem, officers? Rahab, we know the men are in there. And she does what all good liars do. She mixes a little bit of truth with a whole lot of lies. She goes, oh yeah, the men, they were here. Yeah, they were here. But they took off. They went towards the gate. And then she plays to their ego. She says, pursue them quickly. You'll be able to catch them. Oh, you guys are fast. You guys are good hunters. You'll be able to find them. You're good trackers. Go now and you'll be able to catch them. And the men are dumb as bricks. They're like, okay. And they just take off and they go. <laughs> She's smart. She's savvy. Now, this begs the question, is it okay to lie if it's for a good cause? And the answer is no. By divine standards, Rahab lied. She's guilty of lying. But you're going to see, you're going to see in a little bit how the Lord's grace is going to cover this infraction. You'll see that in just a little bit. But I don't want you thinking that it's okay to be lying to try to justify some certain means. The Lord could have saved these spies by a divine miracle. He didn't need Rahab to lie. But, I mean, she's a Gentile prostitute. She's, she's a work in progress, as we all are. Now, she heads back upstairs and starts talking with the spies. She's got something that she needs to tell the spies. Here's what she says. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please, please swear to me that by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. And deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our lives for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. The first point in your notes I want you to see is that Rahab's faith was based on fact. 
Rahab's faith was based upon fact. And I want to ask the question to you today. Is your faith based upon evidence? Is it based upon fact? You say, well, Chad, if it's based upon evidence, doesn't that mean it's not faith anymore? No, let me show you how this plays out here. It's a beautiful example. Rahab tells these men, I know, I know that your God, the Lord your God, that's important. She does not use the term Elohim, which is the generic term for God in Hebrew. She uses the word Yahweh, which is what God said to the Israelites. This is what you call me. I am who I am. Yahweh, I know that Yahweh is on the move. He's doing stuff through you. We've heard about how he split the Red Sea. He split that sucker right in half and you guys walked up dry land and then he closed it in on all the Egyptians. We've heard the stories. We've seen that the slave population in Egypt is gone. We saw what you did to the Amorites. Now I think that's a little bit lost on us because we don't know that much about the Amorites. We might not know our Old Testament as well as we would like to, but let me tell you something. Deuteronomy chapter three explains the bed that King Og of the Amorites sleeps on. It's 13 feet long by six feet wide and it's made of cast iron. How big do you think that guy is? The prophet Amos will describe the Amorites as being tall as cedars and strong as oak trees. This is a nation of giants, a nation of Goliaths, a a nation of Shaquille O'Neal's. They're huge people. And here comes this little ragtag, nomadic, disorganized group of slaves out of Egypt, and they level the Amorites. They decimate the Amorites. And Rahab's like, we've never seen any other God do something like that. There's something special about your God. He's the one true God. So she's just looking at the evidence around her. She didn't believe in some fancy fairy tale. She didn't get some emotionally hyped up experience. No, she's looking at the evidence. Is your faith based upon evidence? Here's why I'm pressing you on this. As our culture continues to go more on the trajectory it's going, more skeptical, more hostile to the gospel, you and I are no longer afforded the luxury of being lazy Christians. We're gonna need to know why we believe what we believe. It's no longer sufficient to just say, you gotta have faith. It's no longer sufficient to just go, well, it feels right to me. The Bible commands us to always be prepared to give an apologia, to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. Is your faith based on fact? Do you know why you believe this stuff? Do you know? If we're gonna be salt and light, if we're gonna reach and raise authentic followers, we're gonna need to know this stuff because our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors have really good questions and hear me, we got even better answers. Now, I wish I could tell you all the answers. I wish I could stand up here for the next 30 minutes and go, well, here's why we can believe the scriptures and here's evidence for God. I just don't have the time for that. If that's where you're at and you've got questions, I'd love to connect with you afterwards um, and and try to at least answer some of your questions. But we gotta keep moving here. Come with me to chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 15. Rahab's faith is based on fact. I want you to read through this next part with me. 15 says this. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. 
And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. I've got to ask you a question. Where is Rahab's house built? Oh, you're brilliant. You're way better than the first service. You guys are smart. Into the wall. It's built into the wall. Remember that. Don't forget that. Remember where her house is built. 17, then the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father, mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The next point I want you to see is that Rahab's faith moved her to action. Her faith moved her. She responded. She acted. Her faith was not passive. It didn't remain stagnant. Her faith drove her to action. She began to hear about what Yahweh was up to. She began to look at the evidence. And based upon that evidence, she started to respond. Now, here's what I find really, really interesting. The text says that all of Jericho, in fact, it even says that everybody in the land is what? Melting away with fear. So everybody is aware of what God is up to, that God's doing something. Rahab's the only one who does something about it. And this is so important for us, especially if you are a churchgoer. Like if you do this church thing regularly, here's what happens to us. We begin to equate biblical knowledge with real life application. And the two are not the same. Now hear me, I'm not saying Bible knowledge is bad. Yes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, amen and amen. But we've got to do what James said, don't deceive yourself. Don't merely hear the word and do nothing about it. You must do what the word says. It's not enough to just hear and to just lock away in our brains intellectual knowledge. We've got to actually live this out. I mean, Rahab has committed treason against her nation. She's willing to say goodbye to her whole way of life, culture, neighbors, language. She's willing to say goodbye to it all. She hides the men. She smooth talks the guards. She cuts this deal with these spies. I mean, her faith is moving her. She's in action. Is your faith in action? Or do you got a lot of Bible knowledge, but you're just kind of sitting on it? This time of the year is such a perfect time to, to start putting our knowledge into action, especially the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the holidays are a perfect time to do it. So some of you in here can bake awesome treats. 
bake awesome treats and take it to your neighbor. The one that's house is really dirty and they don't keep their lawn well kept and they're always up late partying. Take them treats and slip in a little invite card, bring it to their front door. Hey, Merry Christmas. God bless you. If you're watching the game, bring over your neighbor. Hey man, come watch the game with me. Make some good delicious food and ask them a lot of questions about themselves. Be quick to listen, be very slow to speak. If they got a bunch of leaves in their front yard, man, sweep them up, rake them up. This is a great time, easy time of the year to love people. And it's the holidays. It's like what we're expected to do. So people aren't gonna think you're weird. It's perfect, all right, go do it. Now, Rahab's story picks back up in chapter six, but something really cool happens in between. Something very powerful happens in between. Joshua has the massive problem of trying to cross over the Jordan River with about 1.2 to anywhere, depends on the commentary you read, up to like 2 million Jews. They've got to cross this massive river. And at this time of the year, the Jordan is gushing. I mean, it is a torrent of a river. So how do you get some 1, 2 million people across this river without losing a bunch of them in the torrent? God comes to Joshua and says, Joshua, I'm going to do something so that everyone knows I'm with you. Have the priests get the Ark of the Covenant and have them just dip their feet in the water and just watch what I do. So sure enough, Joshua commands the priests, get the Ark, go set your feet into the water. They set their feet barely ankle deep, barely ankle deep. And all of a sudden, this rushing torrent of water starts to stack up on itself. It literally becomes this massive wall of water and begins to actually flow backwards against the current, begins to go back up the river. Now, the crazy thing is that geographically where Jericho is, they can see the Jordan River. So they're watching this this river stack up on end, go back up against the current, and millions of Jews start crossing the river on dry ground. If they're already melting away with fear, how do you think they're feeling after seeing this? Watch what chapter six says. Chapter six, verse one. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. The king gives an executive order. And his executive order is something like this. Uh Uh-oh, we're going to die. Everybody get inside. (laughs) Locks the whole place down. The city is locked down. Nobody in, nobody out. Verse two. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. God tells Joshua, get your soldiers. Get your soldiers and get your priests. 
and I want you to do a lap around the city and go back to camp. So they march out there. Guards in the front, guards in the back, priests with the Ark of the Covenant right in the middle. The Ark of the Covenant's just, it was an old box. It had angels on it. They had the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. It's where God's presence would dwell. So they're marching around the city. The priests are blowing the horns. It's like a scene from Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's like they're encircling the city. Now, if they're already terrified and they watch these Israelites encircle, totally surround, they've got to be terrified. But it's almost like God's kind of messing with them because they circle around and then they just go back to camp. And then they do it again the next day and then they do it the next day and they do it six times. But then on that seventh day, like a shark circling its prey, they just start lapping the city. And then Joshua kind of taps into his inner Mel Gibson, his inner William Wallace. They get it seven times around and he's like, shout for the Lord, the city is ours. And everybody's like, yeah, the priests are blowing the horns. And the, and the walls just come falling down and they walk straight into the city. And the text will say they devote everything to destruction. Everything. Man, woman, children, livestock, the gold, the silver, the iron, the bronze goes to the treasury of the Lord. It doesn't go to the people. We've got to talk about that because people have a really hard time with a loving God that slaughters children. What do we do with that? Two things at play here I want you to think about. Number one, God is using the Israelites as a nation of judgment, a tool for judgment. The Canaanites were a horribly wicked people. Like they threw their, fa- they threw their babies into fire, sacrificing to the God of Molech. Does that paint a picture for us? So God's using this nation. It's not an ethnocentric thing because later the Jews get judged by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But he's using the Israelites as a nation of justice. And there's something else here at play. There was a common practice when you would conquer a nation. When you would conquer a nation, you'd kill off all the men, but you'd keep the women and children as slaves. And all the gold would go to the soldiers, it'd go to the king, it would go to the people, the livestock would go to the people. You benefited from somebody else's destruction. That's not happening here. The Israelites are not benefiting from their conquest. God, in many ways, is forcing them to keep trusting him. No, no, you're not gonna benefit from this judgment. You will keep being dependent on me. Tough text, but I hope that frames it up in a little bit of a helpful way. Everything gets leveled, everything gets destroyed. Now, where does Rahab live? Huh. So wait a minute. If all the walls came falling down, how does Rahab get saved? Wouldn't she be crushed underneath all the rock and all the mortar and all the brick? How does this work? So I started thinking about this. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, is there a problem here? And I called up one of my good friends, uh, a PhD theological doctor, a guy named Kenny Rhodes. I'm like, dude, can you research this for me real quick? So he starts kind of digging into it and he finds this publication, finds this scholarly publication called Bible in Spade. And I wanna read for you what they found. This is Bible in Spade, volume 12, published in 1999 on page 37. The German excavation of Jericho in 1907 to 1909 found that on the north, a short stretch of the lower city wall did not fall as everywhere else. A portion of that mud brick wall was still standing to a height of eight feet. 
What is more, there were houses built against the wall. It is quite possible that this is where Rahab's house was located. From this location on the north side of the city, it was only a short distance to the hills of the Judean wilderness where the spies hid for three days. Objective archaeological evidence to show that the Lord dropped all of the walls except for this little portion because there was a scarlet cord hanging out of the window. Now, what I have for you next is so important. If you've been tuning me out, I need your ears right now. The next point in your notes is this. Rahab was saved by her faith, not her morality. She was saved by faith. The Lord did not spare Rahab because she got her act together. The Lord did not spare Rahab because she quit her life of prostitution and and joined a Bible study and started doing her devos in the morning. I get really nervous when I share this kind of stuff because um, in my experience, what I found is that all of us have kind of a grid. We've got filters that we hear things and we see things through. So I'm worried that I'm communicating one thing, but it's being internalized very different in your heart and mind. I want to speak to two groups. There's two groups in here. I want to speak to the churchgoers, and then I want to speak to those of you who aren't really churchgoers. For the churchgoers, I'm worried that you're not hearing me. I'm worried that you have fallen victim to a very subtle, sneaky trap. Matt Chandler will call it therapeutic, moralistic deism. And that's a big, fancy phrase for, I soothe my conscience before God by doing what's right. So God loves me because I keep the rules. And here's how you know if you've fallen victim to this. You ready? If you feel, if you think in your mind and feel in your heart that God loves you more when you're obeying and he loves you less when you're disobeying, you do not understand the gospel. You have missed the gospel. You've bought into legalism. You've bought into, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And here's the problem with that. The Lord says that our morality is menstrual rags before him. I didn't say that, the Bible said that. So how does God view our morality outside of Christ? Not so good. My brothers, my sisters, we are saved because Jesus Christ has purchased us out of sin. We are saved because Christ has ransomed us. We are saved because his wounds have healed us. We are saved because of Jesus, period. It is by one sacrifice that God has perfected for all time those who believe in him. We are not saved because we've added to it God does not love us more when we're obeying or disobeying. We are perfectly loved because of Christ, perfectly accepted because of Christ. And here's why I'm pushing so hard on this. If you're caught in this legalistic trap, it's exhausting. You're not gonna make it. It's exhausting. You're gonna constantly feel like, I've gotta get better, I've gotta get better, I gotta try harder, I gotta do more, I gotta do more. And you're gonna eventually grow weary of Christianity and you will quit. Jesus Christ 
shed his blood on the cross so that our blood wouldn't need to be shed. And it is by his stripes that we are healed, nothing else. So the wonderful, wonderful song still rings true. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Christ. No morality, no Bible study, no good deeds on my part. My righteousness is only based in Christ, him alone. You've got to hear this, please, you've got to hear this. This is the gospel. This is the foundation of our faith. You're not gonna make it very long if you're continuing to tip the scales with your good deeds. Now, for those of you that are not churchgoers, you've come here today because you got dragged by a family member, your mom guilt-tripped you, and here you are. Like, I wanna speak to you real quick. The temptation might be for you to go, all these goody two-shoes raising their hands, singing songs. Like, I don't fit in here. (coughs) These people got their lives together. They have no clue what I did last night. They have no clue what's rattling through my brain right now. First of all, you have no clue how jacked up these people really are. They're actually really (laughs) busted up. Okay? But secondly, and I just want to lovingly say this to you. You sure, sure, you have sin. Sure, you've got struggles. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you're a rebel. You, you are defying the living God. That is true. But can I just lovingly say, like, if we stacked your sin up against the sinners in the Bible, you would look like an amateur. You'd look minor league, peewee football. You don't believe me? Let's talk about the family line of Jesus for a little bit. Abraham, adulterer. Jacob, a polygamist. Judah, Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, gets her pregnant, and then tries to burn her alive. That's the tribe Jesus comes from. I mean, do we need to talk about David? David sleeps with his good friend's wife, gets her pregnant, and then tries to cover it up by bringing his friend back, getting him drunk in the hopes that he'll sleep with his wife. But he's a man of character and he doesn't do it, so David sends him to the front line of battle to be killed. Solomon, the professional polygamist, 700 wives. So, what, you think God can't work because you got a porn problem? You think God can't work in your life because you're, you can't put the bottle down, you can't put the pipe down? Are you serious? And listen, I, I say this lovingly. We come to church feeling like God is small. He's not small. He, he forgives big, big sin because he's a big, strong God. Rahab is a hooker. She sells her body She has been objectified, discarded, used, and abused by countless scores of men. And she is reconciled. She's saved by God because she trusted him. Because she said, okay, if it's hanging the cord out of the window, that's what I'll do. And the offer on the table for us is trust Jesus, that he heals you. You don't heal you. You don't fix you. Christ does. Rahab's saved by her faith. She's not saved by her morality, and it's the same for us. Now, the last point I want to show to you today is this. Rahab's faith taught her a better way of living. Rahab's faith taught her a better way of living. Whenever I preach radical, crazy, extreme grace like I just did, I always get looks. I get looks in the audience from you. 
You know what the looks look like? It's a scowl. <laughs> Usually the head turns a little bit. But it's okay because they're feeling something. That's not a bad thing to feel. And here's what they're feeling. They're feeling, all right, young preacher boy, you're making this sound like it's really, really easy. But I know the Bible. I know Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Obey me. What about that, huh? What about that, Mr. I'm justified by grace alone? What do you do with the obedience side of this? And that's a wonderful question. I love when you ask me questions that I'm ready to give you answers for. <laughs> makes my job a lot easier. I wanna show you how Rahab's life kind of fills in this obedience factor for us. Chapter six, come with me to verse 25. Chapter 6, 25 reads like this. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived where? In Israel. She has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. As you read further on through the Bible, as you get to the genealogy especially of Matthew, you are going to find that Rahab leaves her life of prostitution, leaves her life of idolatry, she leaves her life of paganism, she is welcomed into the community of God's people, the Israelite nation. She's no longer a prostitute. She gets married. She marries a guy named Salmon, not Salmon, Salmon. And she has children. One of her children is the great-grandfather of King David. Jewish history will tell us her other children become priests. This woman co goes from being a pagan Gentile hooker to being a God-fearing mom and wife whose family line is traced to David. You ready for this? Gets traced ultimately to Jesus. Our Messiah has a prostitute in his family line. That should give us hope. That should mean our sin doesn't scare him away. That should mean just as you are right now, you are not too far gone. That he can rescue anyone. And here's how this works. As she begins to assimilate into this new lifestyle, this new community of people, God is teaching her a new way of living. God is teaching her, Rahab, you're not a prostitute anymore. You're my daughter. That's the old you. This is the new you. Let me show you how to do this. Rahab, you've been abused. You've been uh, dejected. You've been, um, you've been beaten. You've been thrashed around by countless men. No longer. I'm gonna give you a man that will love you and cherish you, protect you, care for you. And in return, you're gonna love him, cherish him, protect him. This is what you're made for. You're gonna have kids. I'm gonna teach you how to be a mom. She's this beautiful picture of redemption. And what this means for us is that as we see this beautiful love of, of God, this amazing grace that reconciles us, that saves us, there's something else that's gonna happen. He's gonna begin to show us, God will begin to show us that his way of doing life works way better than our way of life. So the Proverbs say it beautifully. There's a way that seems right to you and I, but in the end it leads to death. 
That's pretty severe, is it not? Didn't say like, hey, it leads to, you know, maybe a bad morning here and there. You're gonna die if you do it your way. Jesus has laid out through the scriptures, man, here's how you handle sex. Sex works well in marriage. Husband, wife, committed to each other. Sex was designed to flourish there. It's beautiful. Have lots of it. Do it outside of there. It's gonna hurt you. Money works best when you're generous with it. When you don't hoard it and you don't make it a God and you don't try to make it everything. That'll kill you. Make you a bitter, grumpy person. Food, drink, work, relationships, on and on and on down the list we go. God has laid out good, healthy ways for life to be done. And this is where obedience happens. Obedience becomes the avenue to our joy, not the roadblock. So, so God isn't saying, hey, avoid sexual immorality because he wants you to be repressed. He's saying avoid that because sexual sin kills us. It destroys us. He's not saying, hey, avoid drunkenness because he doesn't want us to have a good time. He's saying, no, avoid drunkenness because I designed your stomach, I designed your mind, I designed your emotions. Your head the next morning and your reputation will thank me. He's for us. He's a good father. And his commands, his, his draw towards obedience is for our life. And I think Rahab is just a beautiful picture of that. Taken from darkness into this new way of living. And it's the same for us. As we begin to fall in love with Jesus, he begins to show us, I've got better ways for you. I've got life that's really life. So the offer on the table today is will you follow him? Will you follow him? The last point in your notes is not a fill-in point. I wrote it in for you. And it says this. Which one of these points, which one of these lessons do you need to grow in this week? And what I want you to do is just take your pen and circle one. If you circle two or three, you're not gonna do them. Just pick one. This one. I need to prayerfully, I need to carefully ask the Lord to help me in this area. Would you bow? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Rahab. Thank you, God, for this story. Um, I'm excited to meet her one day, Lord. I, I believe that in heaven, we're going to meet this woman one day. Um, I thank you for her life and, and the way that she beautifully shadows and, and pictures. She resembles the gospel. So, Lord, help us now to not just merely hear the word, but to do the word. Help us now, Lord, to base our faith in fact. Help us, Lord to be a people that respond, that live out our faith, to be a people that hold to the grace of Jesus, that we are saved by faith, we are not saved by our actions. And help us, Lord, to be a people that slowly but surely begin to see that your ways are better than our ways, that you've come to give us life and life abundantly. May we take hold of it and walk in that. Love you, Lord. Thank you for all that you are. I pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen.